0: We're looking this morning at the very final section of Romans 8. We're looking at verses 31 through 39. I have noted throughout on numerous occasions that Romans 8 opens with that great statement, no condemnation, and it closes with that great statement, no separation. Those are the bookends. And in between is suffering and trial and hardship and everything that seems to run counter to no condemnation and no separation. But those are the bookends to remind us who we are as justified believers and who God is as having bound himself to us in covenant promise and fulfilling all those promises for his people. There is really no greater anchor for your soul in this life, than Romans chapter 8 and those two bookends of no condemnation and no separation. So we're looking here at the concluding verses, Romans eight thirty-one to 39. Paul now gives us one of those great questions that surfaces throughout this book. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there have been many great saints throughout church history who have been put in incredibly difficult situations in life, many of the things Paul lists here in this passage, persecution, famine, peril, sword, uh, many great saints who, who stood their ground in the midst of it and held fast to the confidence that they had that God was for them. One of the greatest accounts of that is uh, from the Reformation period with John Knox in Scotland and and the great persecution of Bloody Mary, Mary Queen of Scots, and and the ways in which she was trying to eradicate Protestants. And they called her Bloody Mary for a reason. And yet Knox almost single-handedly took her on. And... Knox gives us sort of an a insight into what was motivating him to be able to press through the challenges and the hardship, but which we've never known, that sort of persecution to that degree for faith in Christ. And in, in one very short and pithy statement, John Knox said, "With God, with God, one is a majority. With God, one is a majority." What Knox was doing was he was reflecting on what the Apostle Paul is saying here at the end of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul's not saying there won't be people against us. In fact, he's going to say right here in this section, all day long, we are being, we are being killed. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. Bad things are going to happen to believers. Hard things are going to happen to believers. Persecution is going to happen. Suffering is going to happen. Trials are going to happen. Opposition is going to happen. But when those things happen, the Christian has an anchor for his or her soul in the truth that if God is for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. Because with one, with God, One is a majority. God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And what the apostle is doing here in Romans 8 and what we're seeing this morning is that he is is taking his readers up to the highest peak of the mountain. He's He's been going up throughout Romans and he's been stopping along the way. And he's been showing them the vista from the areas in which he's gone up. But now he comes to the very top of the mountain and he stops as he's done throughout this letter. And, and it's as if he's, he's trying to, to get everyone to take a breath in wonder at the greatness of the grace of God in the gospel and to really understand what is yours because of who God is and what Christ has done. Now, I want us to just see two things this morning. First, I want us to consider uh, the threat to the believer's assurance, the threat to the believer's assurance, and then secondly, the ground of the believer's assurance, threats to the believer's assurance, and the ground of the believer's assurance. Well, notice that Paul does transition here in verse 31 with a very common uh, question. And by the way, everything uh, between verses 31 through 35 are questions, Paul is is using these logical questions and answers to help the people understand the greatness of the benefits they have in Christ. But, but he has used this one particular phrase that you'll see in verse 31. He's used it um, seven times in Romans. He used it back in Romans chapter 3 verse 5. Then he used it in Romans 4, verse 1. Then he used it again in chapter 6, verse 1. Then in chapter 7, verse 7. Then in 8.31, he'll use it again in chapter 9, verses 14 and 30. But here in 8.31, he is saying, he is stopping and he is saying, what then shall we say to these things? You see, he wants, he wants you to stop and reflect on all that he's just taught. All things work together for good for those that love God who are called according to his purpose. Um, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Even creation is groaning, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God in the resurrection on the last day. The spirit indwelling us is groaning within us, um, helping us intercede to God. And Paul's saying, what then shall we say to these things? Let's step back. Let's look at those again. Let's think about it. What are some conclusions that we should draw from this? And Paul now has a particular um, thing in mind, and that is the assurance that the believer is, uh, belongs to the Lord and that the Lord is with him. The Lord is going to keep him, that the Lord's never going to forsake him, that no matter what happens circumstantially on the horizontal plane, on the vertical plane, the Lord is always with his people, always for his people, no matter what their circumstances tend to say to them. Now, Paul seems to have a threat in mind here, and you'll notice. In these questions, these seven questions that he asked throughout this section, beginning in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? There's, there's a threat. Paul understands that in the minds and the hearts of the people of God, that, that we tend to, we tend to, to shudder back. We tend to, we tend to move backwards when we feel that people are against us. I mean, I don't know about you, but I like people being for me. I like happiness, I like comfort, I like joy. So I like people being for me, not against me. And in life, sadly, we've all known what it is to have people against us, and how difficult that is, and how much that impacts us. Paul understands that. He understands that believers are not immune to feeling the threats of opposition, or persecution, or difficulty, but that those things have a real impact. And so Paul asks that first question, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then notice verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? There is the threat put in a different way. And then notice verse 34, yet another side to the threat, who is to condemn? And then notice verse 35, and this is sort of Paul asking this fourth question in such a way that that he he wants believers to say, do I really believe the greatness of what Paul is about to tell me? And he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There, There is the threat to the believer's assurance put in four questions. Who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, what's interesting about what Paul does is that Paul essentially bundles those those questions together. And what he is saying de facto is, the greatest concern that you and I should have in this life is not whether so-and-so is against me, or not whether so-and-so is causing me problems, or not whether so-and-so is not seeking to, to, to help me, but rather to hurt me. The biggest concern believers should have is, is God for me when I'm going through these difficult circumstances? When my conscience is gnawing because of my sin, is God for me? when my conscience is accusing me because I know I sinned again in a way I didn't want to sin again, is God for me? When my conscience is being being, uh, condemning toward me and saying, guilty, 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 the question is, do I know and believe that God is for me in the gospel? That's the biggest concern that the believer should have. But what's interesting about what Paul is doing by raising this threat to our assurance is he's not so much thinking about our consciences, though that certainly plays a role in some of what he's saying, but notice he doesn't say what can condemn us. He says who, who can condemn us. You know, there's a really interesting feature to the book of Romans, and that is that Satan is not mentioned hardly at all. There's one reference to Satan in chapter 16, verse 20, where Paul says, uh, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's the only reference to Satan in the whole book. Um, References to sin abound throughout Romans, which, by the way, should tell us something about What's the greater enemy in our daily experience, our sin or the evil one? But here I think Paul has someone very specific in mind. When he says, who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Who is against us? Who can be against us? And then notice, right in between those two questions, there are in verses 33 and 34, I think he gives us an indicator. He says, who can bring a charge against God's elect and who is to condemn. Now those are two different things. Who can bring a charge? Who can condemn? Who can accuse? Who can condemn? I almost wonder if Paul doesn't have that great um, picturesque vision um, in the book of Zechariah of Joshua, the high priest, and uh, you probably know this. Joshua's standing there before the Lord and He's got filthy clothes on, which denotes his sin. And, and Satan is there, and Satan is accusing him before the Lord. Look at, look at all his sin. Look at that filth. Look at that. And the Lord says, I have taken off his filthy garments, and, and he clothes him with new robes. That's a picture of the righteousness of Christ. And the Lord is not allowing the accusations of the evil one to stand against one that he has redeemed. And we know that in the Bible, Satan is called, and in the book of Revelation, he is called the the accuser of the brethren. That's what he loves to do. And he has a thousand different ways of doing that. He can do it through leading us into temptation and then trying to hold us prisoner to the guilt of our conscience rather than us going to the foot of the cross to be washed and cleansed and forgiven again. He He can try to paralyze us in that way. He can stir up Entire nations and move them against one of God's children, like he did with the Sabaeans against Job. He can move whole nations against one believer to try to bring them to a place where they think that God is not for them. You see, he has so many ways and so many schemes, and I think the Apostle Paul understands that the persecution and the opposition and the trials and the sufferings of believers are often a playground for Satan to accuse you and to try to convince you that God is against you. God is not for you because of your sin. God is not for you because of these circumstances. How could God be for you when all of these bad things happen? Um, You know, we we so often measure our relationship to the Lord on our circumstances. How are things going for me? Are things going my way? Are things just getting better and better and better? If they are, God must be for me. If they're not, he must be against me. Um, that's, that's what Paul has in view when he thinks about the threat to the believer's assurance. He wants us, he wants us to lift our eyes off the, the, the horizontal plane of what's going on in our lives, and he wants us to look vertically up to God, and he wants to understand who he is and what he's done in Christ, and he wants us to have our minds and hearts settled because those circumstances are never going to tell us God is for us. There is only one place we can go to know that God's for us, and that's the foot of the cross. It's the only place. Um, I had a friend when I met my wife... um, he, he said to me, and, and I convinced her to date me, which was the greatest thing i 've ever done in my life um, amazing and and he said he said um, he said, "Man, God must really love you to to bring Anna to you and I went and told a buddy about that, and my buddy said, "No, God loves you because Christ died for you. you see." We tend to look at the good things and we tend to look at the hard things and we tend to draw conclusions about ourselves in relationship to God from those things rather than looking at what God says in his word, looking at the character of God and knowing there is nothing and there is no one who can bring a charge against God's people, who can condemn Christ, God's people because of what God has done in Christ. And that's marvelous. You know, we, we need to hear this recurrently. Um, when, when life is easy, it's easy for us to think God's for me. When life is hard, it's very difficult for us to have our minds and hearts settled in those truths. Now, that threat sort of sets the background for everything. Um, now you'll notice that Paul sort of bundles everything at the end of verse 35 there who shall separate us from the love of Christ now notice this shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword it's it's as if Paul's grappling for any category of anything that might shake your assurance or confidence that God is for you and then notice toward the end he does it again and this is amazing It's as if Paul is bringing an indictment against the entire universe. Don't miss this. It's as if Paul is bringing an indictment against the entire universe. Notice this. He says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all of creation can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that is awesome. Paul's saying... If you ransacked the entire universe, you cannot find one thing that will ever really be a true threat to your security in Christ. Ever. Anywhere. Visible, invisible. All of creation. There's nothing. You could ransack the whole universe. Nothing is, is ultimately a threat to your security in Christ well notice though that Paul is really teeing up the the grounds of assurance those four questions then make way for subsequent answers to those questions and those answers give us the ground of that assurance the threat is set out very clearly and then the grounds of our security in Christ and notice as we go through this that some of the greatest verses in the Bible start to just spring up out of this passage uh, Romans 8:32. I, I'm not sure you, you could find a greater verse than this. Notice what Paul says in answer to the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Notice this. Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, Paul is doing something really wonderful here. He, he's explaining w- what God has done in the gospel, and then he's arguing from the greater to the lesser to ground your assurance that God is for you. And here's how he does that. He set, sets it up with those great words, he who did not spare his own son. He who did not spare his own son. Now, what is, what is Paul saying here? Paul's saying that God the Father gave his son up to execute the full measure of judgment against him on the cross. Um, The idea of sparing comes from the law court, and and the idea would be of a judge sparing a criminal, some greater sentence that that criminal probably deserved. And, and, And what Paul is saying is that God the Father did not spare executing the full wrath against his infinitely beloved son. He did not spare his son. Um, It was this verse, by the way, he gave him up for us all. Um, It was this verse that led Charles Spurgeon to say, when I look at the cross, I sometimes think that God loved me more than he loved his own son. He did not spare his son. Um, I think Paul is also probably almost certainly drawing off of that great that great narrative in Genesis when God calls Abraham to offer up Isaac. And the language in Genesis 22 is such. God says, take your son, your only son. Take Isaac. He is your only begotten beloved son, as it were. And I want you to offer him up to me, I want you not to spare him, and Abraham goes through and he takes Isaac up on the mountain with Moriah, and Isaac's carrying the wood with him, and he he puts him on the altar, and and as he is about to obey God and not sparing his son, God intervenes and he spares Isaac. But I think that that's setting us up in a very real sense for the conclusion of redemptive history. Why would God spare Isaac when he told Abraham to offer him up? Because there had to be a greater sacrifice. A son, an only son, who would not be spared. Um, I think Isaiah the prophet touches on this in Isaiah, in that, that section on the servant songs, Isaiah 50 and following, and... When he speaks about um, the accuser and accusations and charges being brought, it seems like it's forming the background of what Paul's saying here. But in Isaiah 53, in the great chapter about the suffering servant, Isaiah says about the promised Messiah, it pleased the Lord to crush him. It pleased Jehovah to crush him. It was the good pleasure of God to crush him. And what makes That's so amazing is that the father did not spare the son even when the son prayed and asked if there was a way he could be spared. Because in the garden of Gethsemane, the son said, father, if it's possible, if there's any other way than me having to drink the cup of this wrath, to have the fellowship broken, to be forsaken by you, to lose that intimate fellowship that I've never had broken one second in my life. If it's possible for you to spare me, would you do that? That was the son's will according to his human nature. Now, we know that the son volitionally laid down his life. It wasn't against his will. This is not cosmic child abuse. The son is God. The son consented in eternity to laying down his life willingly and taking it again. The father and the son share the same divine essence and will. And yet in in the council of eternity, the father has to act as the offended party. The one against whom we've sinned and the son as the one who stands in the place of the offended party. And so Paul sees all of that, all of that, when he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Listen to this, John Murray, reflecting on this verse. It says, God the Father did not withhold or lighten one whit of the full toll of judgment executed upon his well-beloved And only begotten Son. There was no alleviation of the stroke. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. There was no mitigation. That's what happened at the cross. There was no mitigation. There was no mercy for Christ. There was no sparing. There was no alleviating of him taking that wrath to the fullest extent, enduring, as it were, hell on the cross because of our sin, and yet God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, delivered him up for us all. You know, when you read the gospel narratives, you'll find that Jesus is being delivered up by seemingly everyone from the moment he's arrested. Um, He's delivered up by Judas, he's delivered up by the Roman soldiers, he's delivered up by Herod, he's delivered up by the Jews, he's delivered up by Pilate. Everyone is delivering Jesus over to judgment. And yet, as Octavia, uh, Octavius Winslow so famously stated, it, it, that Jesus was not delivered up by Pilate, ultimately, or by the Jews, but by God the Father because of his love for those he was going to redeem. You know, Simon Peter says this in Acts chapter 2 when he says, you know, you took him with lawless hands. You delivered him up and crucified him. And then he says, but that was all according to God's determined purpose and foreknowledge. Everything that God determined would happen. He did not spare his son. He gave him up for us all. And then notice he argues from the greater to the lesser. If he gave us the greatest thing he could give us, think of this. There is nothing greater than the infinite and eternal son. And if God the Father would give him up for you, you can be assured that anything less than that, any lesser gift, that that he is not going to withhold that. Notice what Paul does here. In verse 32, he says, uh, if he gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The, The security that you long for, the resurrection that you hope in, The the end of suffering and persecution and opposition, the eternal life that you long to know is yours, the assurances that God gives. If he gave up his son, if he did not withhold the greatest gift, you can be sure that he's not going to withhold any other lesser gift from you. That's amazing. Remember, Paul did this back in chapter 5. He said, if when we were enemies, Christ died for us, he says, much more now that he has reconciled you, will you be saved from wrath through him. There's always the greater to the less, or the greater to the greater in Paul's thinking. And so Paul is giving us the ground of the believer's assurance. Now, it's not just, it's not just that the father gave the son up. Notice the answer to the second question there in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Again, think of Zechariah the high priest. That's a picture of justification. His dirty clothes were taken off. He was clothed with new robes and robes of righteousness. He was justified. All the accusations of the evil one couldn't stick because God had justified him. All the accusations of the evil one against you and your conscience and your sin and anything that you seem to be experiencing that makes you think God is not for me. Paul says, well, if he's justified you, no one can even bring an accusation against you. No one, no one can bring a charge that will stand against you because God has fully atoned for your sins in the death of Jesus on the cross. That's awesome. Now, Paul does something Amazing as he unpacks the ground of the believer's assurance. He says the father gave up his son, did not spare him. He says the son by his death has justified you. No one can bring an accusation against you. And then notice what he does. He answers the third question, who is to condemn by saying Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Right now, Jesus is interceding for his people. That's amazing. Right now, Jesus Christ is interceding for you. In the worst moments that you have, in the worst and hardest situations you find yourself in, Christ, the risen one who died and rose again, is even now interceding for us. That's a great ground of our assurance that God is for us and that nothing can be against us. Listen to this, John Calvin reflecting on Christ interceding for us, said, Christ sits at the right hand of the Father that he may be a perpetual advocate an interceder in securing our salvation, it follows that when anyone seeks to condemn us, he not only seeks to render void the death of Christ, but also contends with the unequaled power with which the Father has honored him, and who with that power conferred on him supreme authority. What Calvin's saying is anytime someone tries to condemn you, if you're a true believer, they are actually assaulting the person and the work of Jesus. Because all of our assurance is bound up in who he is, what he's done, and what he's doing. They're contending with him, not with you. You know, we have not experienced this. The reformers experienced this. The accusations when they were being burned at the stake by Roman Catholic priests who were saying, you're wicked heretics. That's the condemnation that Paul has in mind here. They were being condemned as they were being burned at the stake for preaching what I'm preaching, and yet they knew that ultimately the attack was against Christ himself, that no condemnation could be leveled against them because Christ was risen and interceding for them. Notice that Paul gives us that fourth and final question when he says there, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, what's interesting here is Paul is not saying, again, there will not be hardships. When he says God is for us, Christ is interceding for us. He's not saying, and therefore everything will just get better and better and better. You know, it should anger us when we hear the third wave charismatics telling people, if you have enough faith, you, you, everything will be healed, everything will be good, everything will be better. Where this really came to bear a number of years ago, um, a, a couple in, um, in one of those third wave churches up in Northern California had lost a child. And they had gone online and they said, we're asking all our friends to pray that God will raise her back to de- from the dead right now. And man, my heart broke because they had bought into the lie that if God was for them, how in the world could this have ever happened? What Paul's saying is when those things happen, know that God is for you. When those things happen, don't let the evil one condemn you because Christ has justified you. God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Know for certainty, when your world seems like it's falling apart, this is where we go. This is where we go. Spurgeon also said, reflecting on this passage, essentially, and famously he said, there is no stopping this God. There is no stopping this God. Isn't that awesome? Whatever circumstances may befall you, And again, I know you don't come here to feel bad. I I don't get kicks out of telling you how hard life is. But it is hard. And Christians are going to go through hard times. But when we do, our confidence is that God is for us. No one and nothing can be against us. No one can bring a charge against us. No one can condemn us. And no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Listen. The Lord Jesus never started loving the elect. You need to listen carefully. God never decided, I'm going to start loving so-and-so. Jeremiah says, the Lord says to Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with cords of love, I have drawn you. Um, Gerhardus Voss says, the greatest evidence that God will never stop loving us is that he never started. He always loved those that he chose in Christ. And that means that the Lord Jesus, who loved you and gave himself for you, who loved you and laid down his life for you out of love, will never stop loving you. You will never be separated from his love. You know, I know enough about the Christian life now and enough about professing believers to know that one thing that plagues the hearts of believers more than anything is the question, does he really love me? Does he really love me? With all the filth and the ugliness of me, does he love me? And the Bible's answers are resounding, oh, he loves you far more than you could ever comprehend. Paul says that that he wanted the believers in Ephesus to know the length and breadth and width and height of the love of Christ that passes knowledge. The incomprehensible love of Jesus. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. How do I know that he loves me? Is it because he gave me a great spouse? Is it because he gave me great kids? Is it because he's made me really successful? Because by the way, in our day the great challenge may not be persecution, it's that we live in a society where success is everything and we measure ourselves and our relationship with God based on success, and that is a bad God and a bad metric to have because we don't look at whether we've been successful We don't look at how good our children have turned out. We don't look at how happy we are in our marriages. We look at the cross. And when we look at the cross, we say, how could God love me that much? That the father would not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You know, I believe Paul ends Romans 8 with this because he knows the greatest battle that you and I will face in this life is oftentimes not the battle of going through all the hardship. The great battle is having our minds and hearts settled in these truths. God is for us. No one can bring a charge against us. No one can condemn us, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. You could search the entire universe, as Paul seems to do at the very end of this, and you will never find one thing that can in any way undo the efficacy of what God has done in Jesus Christ for you. And that is absolutely amazing. And I think Paul brings this section to a close and wants you to stand at the top of that mountain and to just exhale and to just spend time looking at the contours of all these truths. He doesn't want you to hasten past these. There's nothing There's nothing to hasten past these two. In fact, I think the next several chapters are an appendix to this. He sort of brings the conclusion of chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God into salvation. To a close here, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. I hope that you'll be encouraged as you work your way through these These struggles that you may have internally to know that God is for you, that no one can bring a charge against you, that no one can condemn you, and that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. I hope that you'll meditate often on that. I hope that you'll rest in that. I hope that you'll fix your eyes on the cross and not on your circumstances. You'll think often of what it means that the Father did not spare his son but gave him up for us all. And he's going to give us every other good thing. If he's done that, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these are truths that we know with our minds, yet often fail to grasp and comprehend in our hearts. We ask this morning, our God, that you would not only expand our minds in um, the horizon of the greatness of your love for us, and your giving your Son for us, and the love of Christ for us. But we pray, our God, that you would cause them to reach into every single recess of our hearts, that they would touch our consciences, that, Lord, you would strengthen our minds and our hearts in these truths, and that you would enable us to hold fast to them, even as you have promised to hold fast to us. We pray, our God, that... When you call us to go through the deep waters, you will remind us that you are for us, that you are with us, and that nothing will separate us from the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, would you work these truths in your people? Would you astonish them afresh with it? Would you draw those who have never come to a saving knowledge of Christ into the arms of the Savior through these truths? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.